Uh, Have a seat, please, and open your Bible to Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6. I don't think I have a a very long sermon for you today, but I always think that way, and it doesn't, doesn't always pay off, but this is a simple passage in Proverbs 6, and we're only looking at verses 1 through 19, Proverbs 6, 1 through 19, and these are just really practical warnings uh, given to uh, the Son. And I think to set it up, to set it up, I, I just am thinking through what we just sang and through our, our pastor's uh, anniversary of ministry at this church and what a faithful example uh, he has been and, and how grateful we are as a church for our pastor. Uh, and that, that's true because of the gift it is to have a shepherd and to have a faithful shepherd. And so that's all kind of swirling in my mind. And, and 55 years is a long time. Again, it's my metabolic age. So uh, it's, this, is a, this, is a lot of, this is a lot of damage could happen in 55 years. And it can also be a lot of fruitfulness. And that's what we've seen is, is not damage, but fruitfulness, not not disaster, but, but God's faithfulness. And I wonder how you think as a college student about that, because it's way outside your experience because you're, you know, you're, you're, you're young and vibrant. So how do you think about 55 years and what it, what it takes to, to navigate those years? I mean, for a pastor, and most of you aren't pastors, and some of you aspire maybe to be uh, involved in ministry in different ways, but you, you, the things you see of a pastor's life is sermons. That's like the main thing you see is sermons. Uh, maybe you see some counseling or some encouragement that you've received from a, a pastor in your life, but you think about the pastor's kind of public work is what you think about when you think about those 55 years. And that's certainly what MacArthur has displayed. He's, he's most well known for his teaching and his, his public pastoral ministry. But in light of Proverbs 6, I'd like you to think about the other parts of his life or any life that's required over the course of more than half a century to be found faithful. Uh, imagine the traps that MacArthur has had to avoid in his life. I mean, just consider the most basic element of life. Groceries, right? Groceries are a really basic element of life. I use them as a metaphor for uh, all things finance. Uh, You get paid, and one of the things you do with your, your money is you get a roof over your head, you buy groceries. I sum it all up with the word groceries. Think of how many groceries have had to sustain MacArthur and his family over all these years, which represents finances that had to be procured, a job that had to be worked, money that had to be apportioned and saved, opportunities for that money when there's a little extra to save it or to invest it. I mean, this is true not just for a pastor, but it's true for for everyone, and I know you probably don't think of pastors in that way because you know they should be poor and, and beaten, but uh, that's that's not how it has to be. So, 
every life requires you to use the money that God has provided for you, money that's likely come as a result of you working. And the eagle flies on Friday or every other Friday, and, and you've got to decide, what am I going to do with this, this money? Even in college, you have a meager amount of money you're, you're working with, likely, unless you're a trust fund baby, and then you should talk to me after. Um, but I, I'm just saying, they're, they're, that long of a life, MacArthur's 84 years old. How many times has he gotten paid over the years? How many opportunities has he had to invest his money, to save his money, to give it to people in need? I mean, if that's true of your life in 18 years, imagine if you live another, I don't know, six, seven decades. What will you do with what God's given you? Well, if you think about where that, those resources came from, they came from a job. They came from opportunities to make money, which whether you're a pastor or a dentist, you've got to get the groceries, so you've got to work a job. That's normally how it works. So what kind of work would you do over the course of a whole life? Think about the example of MacArthur again, because this is the big 55 day, and we're thinking about that. Think about how much hard work has gone into his life. I mean, how, much, how, many, how many sermons he's had to write how many hours he spent at a desk reading and researching? How many hours he would spend in the office uh, dealing with problems on the staff or opportunities to uh, encourage ministry in our church or a church somewhere else? I mean, it's a lot, of, a lot of hours, a lot of diligent work. And so I'm trying to help you think of, of this example as not just the spiritual things that we sing about in our gospel songs, the, the forgiveness of, of sin, the all-sufficient merit of Christ, uh, the, the atoning work of the Savior's cross, things we just sang about. But every life requires practical realities. And he also had to spend a lot of time dealing with problems, right? Everybody's got problems. Imagine having problems for 84 years. And so people cause problems. Sometimes your own family causes problems. And one of the big problems you face is people who are, are trying to disrupt things, disrupt the church, disrupt your family, people who are disobedient. I mean, this is, I'm glad I wasn't in charge of giving the speech today because this is a really depressing speech. But this is what life is made of. It's not just all worship, like an intangible spiritual experience. Your life, young people, is a grind in so many ways. And you're in college. Like, this is supposed to be the fun part. And so you have to decide who you're going to hang out with and where you're going to go to eat and what movies you're going to watch. You know, this, these are the hard decisions that you're making. And how are you going to also get your homework done? That, those, those, are the, those are the things you're balancing. Uh, those those issues are going to only multiply. And a faithful Christian life, what we're seeing in Proverbs, isn't just invisible stuff. Jesus at the right hand of God. It's not just the hope of heaven that's stored in our hearts. It's not just the invisible things like the, the forgiveness that comes from a, the justification that Christ procured on a cross that fixed this cosmic debt that we owed to uh, the wrath of God. Like that, that's invisible stuff. It all trickles down to the practical realities that face you Monday to Sunday, week after week, and month after month. 
And however many years God has given you to live, the life part is what Proverbs is, is concerned about. And so giving the example of a MacArthur, a faithful pastor who's lived a long time and worked hard and guarded unity and avoided these traps that I'm, I'm sure people tried to trick him out of his money at times or borrow money in a scheme or something like that. Proverbs 6 is applicable to every life. It's applicable to the life of, of a pastor, a faithful pastor. It's applicable to the life of a dental student. It's applicable to a history teacher. Whoever you are, it's talking about how fearing the Lord works out in these significant areas of danger. Remember, Proverbs 5 tried to show you, and it will show you again in, in the following chapter, this massive trap that seems to be the most emotional and financial and physically devastating thing that can happen in a life, in a practical sense, and that is the shipwrecking of a marriage. And so chapter 5 is all about adultery, and it's a pitfall that can ruin your life if you fall into it. Well, chapter 6 may seem mundane to you because in the first five verses, he's talking about something financial that's kind of hard to understand at first reading. And then there's a famous part about looking at the ant because he's a hard worker in verses 6 through 11. And then in verse 12, there's this description of this bad dude. And you're trying to figure out what he's doing with his hands and his eyes and his fingers. And then in verse 16 through 19, there's kind of a poem about stuff God hates that reminds you of the seven deadly sins that you've heard of. And so what is going on here? We went from don't fall into the trap of the adulterous woman to this kind of seemingly miscellaneous advice given to a son. And here's the thing. I don't think it's miscellaneous at all. I think this is real life. This is wisdom on the streets. And it's negative examples that are moving from chapter 6, verses 1 to verse 19, from small problems to bigger problems to the biggest problems. And it's all illustrations, just like adultery, of what happens if you don't walk God's way. If you reject God's wisdom, you get to live a life that the Proverbs characterize as folly. And remember, the, the translation of the Hebrew word folly in, into English would best be translated stupid. Stupid. You don't even have to say the D. Stupid. So these are illustrations of stupidity, and there's three of them. And any faithful life, whether it's the life of the man Christ Jesus, the life of an of a exemplary pastor like our pastor, or the life of any you know, good Christian mom that is seeking to do her work and raise her kids to the glory of God, or a college student who's thinking about most of life and its practicalities as things ahead, because right now you're just in uh, learn and test mode. What's being displayed in Proverbs chapter 6, verses 1 through 19, are pitfalls that can ruin your life. Stupid things that you're being warned about, that if you don't embrace God's view of things, wisdom, chokmah, the skillful, godly way of living, then here's some stupid that will be served to you in three portions and each one bigger than the last. 
And you don't want stupid. You want a good life. You want a, a life that's rewarding and, and rich and a blessing to yourself and your family and others. And so listen to this fatherly wisdom in Proverbs 6, 1 through 19, and know that any godly person, though we normally measure godliness by things like how many hours that person prays and how sincerely they sing and how often they evangelize, any godly person gets paid every other Friday and has to deal with conflict in their family and has to figure out what kind of an employee they're going to be. This is godliness that's visible, not invisible. This is godliness as it really is, and it's warnings of of three areas that can trap you. Proverbs 6, 1 through 19, don't fall into these common pits, these holes of disaster, these traps of stupidity. Well, first let's look at verses 1 through 5, which I called schemes. Let's look out for schemes, okay? Schemes. And we're going to get so much good stuff in this book about money, but this is kind of our first real look at it. So look at Proverbs 6, verses 1 through 5. My son, again, one of 12 to 17 son speeches that mark the first 10 chapters of Proverbs. My son... Again, reaching out to all of you, regardless of your daughterness or sonness. This is wise to young, my child. If you have become surety for your neighbor or given a guarantee for your neighbor, shaken hands for another person or given a pledge for a stranger, so neighbor and stranger are there. If you've been snared or trapped with the words or sayings of your mouth, or if you've been caught with the words or sayings of your mouth, then do this, my son, and deliver yourself, save yourself, rescue yourself, because you've come into the power or the hand of your neighbor. Go, humble yourself and harass. The NAS says importune your neighbor, a word you've never used in your life. It's a word that means to hassle, like the uh, widow in the New Testament who says like, hey, help me. Go bug your neighbor. There's ATD translation. Verse four, do not go to sleep. Don't give your eyes sleep. Don't, Don't snooze them. Your eyelids, leave them open. Pry them with toothpicks if you have to. Verse four. Verse 5, to rescue or deliver yourself like, like a skinny little gazelle that's about to get hunted and killed or like a bird in the hand of a, a fowler that's somebody who hunts birds. You gotta get yourself out of this trap. All right, that's my best, my best version of kind of translating verses one through five for you and I'm just calling it schemes. There's a warning about schemes. And the schemes have something to do with surety, verse 1, or a guarantee, a vow or a promise, which is the pledge in verse 1, 
words of promise that have you have given and have somehow trapped you in verse 2, and they're repeated in verse 2, and then verse 3 through 5, do everything you can to get out of this scheme that you got yourself into. So what is it? Well, we don't use words like surety or guarantee as much unless you're in the financial industry and you're not because you're in college. So what, what, what does this mean? Well, let me summarize it with this sentence. The wise man is teaching us to navigate financial responsibilities, to avoid entrapments, and to handle God's money in a careful, disciplined, graciously generous way, all to honor God. And I think that's what's in verses one through five. I'm gonna say it again because that was kind of a big sentence and because verses one through five are super ancient in the way they're talking about money, so it's a little bit hard to understand. And I'm gonna, so I'm gonna read this sentence that I wrote again to try to help you understand it and then try to give you some examples of what this looks like in real life, okay? So these are schemes, verses one through five, primarily financial schemes. And what God is teaching us to do through the wise teacher is to navigate financial responsibilities, to avoid entrapments, and to handle God's money in a careful disciplined, graciously generous way that all will give honor to God. Something like that. So what do we have here? Well, what we have is the beginning of so much instruction that we're going to receive in the Proverbs about economics. Now, economics to you is a class. It's a lecture. It's usually pitting you against the principles of capitalism and the free market and lots of other opportunities uh, that the socialists that teach you at the university want you to embrace. So what you're going to be receiving in the book of Proverbs is a lesson on biblical economics. And there's going to be so much we learn about this. And I'm not, my goal is not to reorganize the book of Proverbs and like get all the money stuff out of it and pull it to the side and then put it in a word doc and then do, do a sermon that's, here's everything the Proverbs say about money. Mm-mm. I want you to receive it as it comes because I think the Holy Spirit put it this way. So the first thing you're learning about money is a tendency to be unwise in the promises that you make with it. And this is, this is requiring you to forecast a bit because most of you have, you know, on your phone today a thing that says your account is overdrawn because you're poor. And because you, you, don't, you don't work, you're, you're poor, you're, you're a college student. And so you don't know what it's like to be in a position where somebody borrows a huge amount of money from you and you're on the hook for it. But someday you might be. You're not the one who's being asked to co-sign a loan. Not interested in you co-signing my loan. But a time is coming where you will ask someone to co-sign your loan, probably your parents. And because you need a car because yours is busted or because you're gonna get a house or whatever and somebody's gonna help you. 
And so this proverb isn't talking to teenagers or college students. It's talking to somebody who's got some money and who has an opportunity to do something with money. And it's addressing someone who has put their money forward, shaken hands with another person, verse 1, and trapped their own resources in someone else's debt. That's what's being described. Now, there's so much background here. The Old Testament teaches in the book of Leviticus lots of lessons about how the economy worked in Israel. They weren't allowed to charge each other interest, for example. Very different than the world in which we live. And there was, it, was, it was criminal to charge interest. It still might be, just so you know. And, and so there was rules about lending and borrowing. They were allowed to charge interest to foreigners, to people outside of Israel. It was part of, of economic planning. And there was other kind of issues about the underlying truth of the way that you get money is by working for money, not just being given money. And so some of that is underlying all this, but without getting into every bit of it, I think the part you have to understand to understand the danger of these schemes and why they're relevant to you is a place like Proverbs 22, verse 7. It says, The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is the slave of the lender. All over the Proverbs, you'll find warnings about how dangerous it is to borrow money. I've told you about some of my financial schemes in my teenage years where I bought a laptop with a credit card through a company that was really cool back then. Uh, it, was, it was the Apple. I thought it was going to be Apple. It wasn't. It was Gateway, and they're out of business. And, and I ended up paying probably double what that computer was, was worth because I, I foolishly borrowed money to, to procure something I didn't have. That is kind of a fundamental lesson in how to not do finances. And it's underlying this description in verse 1 through 5. Psalm 37, 21 says, The wicked borrows but does not pay back, but the righteous and generous gives. And I read you that verse, especially Psalm 37, 21, to remind you that there will be times in your life where you will have what the Bible says is a case of the shorts. All right, that's not in the Bible. I, I put that there. It's a concept in the Bible. It's the concept of the borrower. There's going to be a time in your life when you cannot buy what you want and you'll need to borrow. It's happened before at Boba, right? It's a small scale. It's not a mortgage. It's, there's no, there's no middleman, but you've, you've been out of cash before and someone has bought you a Boba and you said, thanks, I'll pay you back for this here boba tea. And then the next time, you got them a boba. But that scale can increase. It increases when you need to buy a car, when you need to buy a house. And navigating financial responsibility is thinking carefully about any deal you enter into. But the, the bottom line underneath this thing is money doesn't come ultimately from borrowing. It comes from working. That's where your money should come from. Not payouts, not scratchers, not the lottery, not a scheme. It should come from putting hours into your job of selling valuable goods and services. That's where money comes from. And when a time comes when you need more money, the answer is always work more. 
But then when you're up against an opportunity, whether it's an investment or a business or a home or a car or something that requires more money than you have, you're going to have to borrow money. And a day will come when you've navigated life well enough that you're the person that people will want to borrow from. And that's where Proverbs 6 begins to instruct us with all the Proverbs teaching on economics, on what is prudent. And it's teaching us to navigate financial responsibility and to especially avoid this entrapment. You see, the entrapment described here is you have put your money on the line for someone else. And now your money is in danger because you're no longer in control of it The person who you lent it to so they could pay their debt, they're the ones, depending on what they do, that could get you in big trouble. In the ancient world, bad harvest is probably what's going on, right? Farmer plants his stuff. We could plant it over here. It's wheat. I was going to say corn. They didn't have corn back then, so I had to switch it. It was a historical, exegetical moment. So they had wheat. So there's wheat Ancient grains ever true. So here's the ancient grains growing over here. Riley, that was for you. Um, And they plant all this wheat. And to plant the wheat, you have to have plow and cow and muscle and a tool and watering irrigation. And it costs money to get all that stuff. And then you, you definitely, most of all, need seeds. So you got to buy seeds. Well, let's say this wheat field right here that's going to sustain your family because you're going to eat wheat and sell wheat and be a wheat guy. It dies. Bugs ate it. Grasshoppers. Green ones. Gone. You're done. And so you've got to figure out a way to survive that year. Hopefully you've saved some grain from years past. You saved some money from years past. But... You put all this investment there and you cannot do it again next springtime, next planting time. And so you've got to borrow some money for seeds. You've got to borrow your neighbor's cow. You've got to borrow your neighbor's rake. You sold everything because the harvest went bad. And your neighbor said, I'll help you. You pay me back at the end of the year. Your neighbor is taking a massive risk because there's a chance that you plant it again and you pray to God and it doesn't rain at all that year. And so your neighbor's ruined and you're ruined. But here's the worst part. You didn't just ruin you two years in a row. You, and this story is not no fault of your own. It's not your fault. You, you let the grasshoppers eat the thing. You, you didn't, you, you're organic. You didn't want to spray grasshopper stuff. So you ruined you and you ruined him. And so the proverb is warning him or you, if you're the person who has stuff to give, that you better be very careful when you're giving a loan, co-signing a loan, getting involved in any financial thing where the intention is either for you to get paid back or maybe for you to make a little money on the loan. 
It's warning you in the strongest language, be super careful about giving out the resources that God has given to you with the expectation that you'll be paid back. Now, please understand, this whole thing doesn't exist in a world that isn't a biblical economy where money comes from work and there's an underlying principle that drives all of biblical economics. And we'll see it in the Proverbs, just not yet. And I think it's underneath the surface here. And it's the principle of generosity. The only way this guy's gonna give that guy any money is because his, it's in his heart to do so. Sometimes there's profit involved, sometimes there's not. In fact, it seems like in verses one through five, it's just a hope and an expectation to rescue this person. But what's happened is you've mortgaged or forfeited yourself and you're being warned about making guarantees, about putting your own family's prosperity in danger to take a risk on someone else's borrowed investment. Now, you're wondering why why is Duncan talking about money? What, what meaneth this? Well, I'm trying to explain what this verse means. But this is going to become a massive part of your life. You're going to have family members who are going to lean on you and say, hey, can you cover this, this debt for me? I promise I'll pay you back. And, and your heart as a Christian is going to be, well, I want to help. I want to be generous. And this verse isn't telling you not to help them. It's telling you, make sure you don't mortgage your own future at the risk of theirs. You see, if you're to take a risk in your business or in an investment, it's one thing to risk what you have. It's an entirely different thing to risk what someone else has or might do or will and won't do. Would it be too much if I quoted the Federal Trade Commission? I don't think so. I think it's just the kind of morning for that. Let's go to the FTC website. I'm there right now. There's something called the credit practices rule. And here's what I appreciate. I don't, you know I don't like accountants that much, but I do like, I do like clear language. Listen to this. It's called notice to cosigner, consumer.ftc.gov. Notice to cosigner. A cosigner is the person, you got no credit because you're a poor joker and you want to buy a car. And so they say, nope, you need a cosigner, somebody who will be good for this money. And you say, mama, and mama's got good credit, 800 credit. And she signs that loan and you get your civic a lease for a Civic that's going to end up costing you $75,000 for a Civic. You fool! You should have talked to your dad about the car. Bad mistake. Sorry, I got distracted by the auto loan. But <laughs> FTC website. So you get a cosigner. This is called notice to cosigner. Listen, you are being asked to guarantee this debt. Think carefully before you do. If the borrower doesn't pay the debt you will have to. Be sure you can afford to pay if you have to and what you want to accept this responsibility that you want. You may have to pay up to the full amount of the debt if the borrower does not pay. 
You may also have to pay late fees or collection costs, which increase this amount. The creditor can collect this debt from you without first trying to collect from the borrower. The creditor can use the same collection methods against you that can be used against the borrower, such as suing you, garnishing your wages, etc. If this debt is ever in default, the fact may become a part of your credit record. This notice is not the contract that makes you liable for debt. Whew, that's kind of scary, right? That's on every single paper that you have to sign if you're going to lend someone your credit, lend someone your money, and usually the reason you can lend it or lend your good name is because you have something that is worth enough that could pay that. And if they screw this situation up, you'll lose your thing, your house, your investment, your car, whatever. It's a great warning. And I'm, I'm just, I'm sitting here, I'm standing here, you're sitting there, and you're just, I'm just wondering, you're going, wow. I'm wondering, what are you thinking? Like, are you thinking this is, this is good advice, this is bad advice, this is, how are you processing this? And what I'm most concerned about is that you see how deeply spiritual this is. This is... Christian living. This is practical theology. We can talk about the pure actuality of God and you can feel like you really know some stuff. But when it comes to this kind of thing, my brother asked me to co-sign a loan. My, My son or daughter needs our help in getting in their first home. My best friend from high school has an opportunity for me to invest in his business. This is where godliness really works itself out. When I was in my 20s, we had maybe just one little kid back then, maybe two, I don't know, but I had a case of the shorts. I had a bill that was due that I couldn't pay and I was really anxious about it and really embarrassed by it. I don't remember the exact circumstances of why this happened, but sometimes you get a case of the shorts. And I talked to a mentor of mine just about the dilemma. Like, I don't know what to do. Do I, should I send my water bill to the electric company and the electric company, my water bill, and try to just stave everybody off for a minute until I can get paid in four days. Like it was one of those kind of things. I was trying to, I need advice. What do I do? Because I had a case of the shorts. I mean, it wasn't a big deal. It was probably a thousand bucks or something. And this mentor of mine scratched me a check. And I was, I mean, I was embarrassed to even tell him. And he was generous to, to lend me this money. And I said, thank you so much. I will pay you back. I'll pay the bill. As soon as I get paid, I'll pay you right away. I, I, I'll pay you right away. And you know what he said to me? It's not a loan. It's a gift. I don't want you to pay me back. You can, but I'm not going to expect it. And that burned in my mind a memory of generosity of financial propriety that this person had that I didn't in my insolvency. 
and he helped me. I think he lent me a thousand, or gave me a thousand dollars. I did pay him back, but I never forgot that he had no expectation to be paid back. Why? Well, let's say he really needed that thousand dollars. I'm sure he could have done something better with it than give it to sorry old me. And let's say he really expected me to pay it back. Let's say he stayed up every night and wrote himself a little note that said, when's Duncan going to pay me back? (laughs) Let's say that a week passed, two weeks passed, a month passed, and he starts to not write a little note on his desk, but carve it into his wall. (laughs) When's Duncan going to pay me back? Imagine how that would eat you and consume you and get you so upset because that money, it's mine. But by giving it in generosity, he released all expectations and he considered it a gift. And so if I burn it at the horse track, I didn't. But if I did, it didn't bother him. It was a gift. No expectation to have that back. That's the spirit. Where he got that kind of thinking is from Proverbs 6, 1 through 5. I guarantee it. Most of the people I know, I was talking to George Crawford this morning, one of the elders at our church, a dear man, a dear friend. And he, he was, we were talking about Proverbs. And he said, my college pastor taught the book of Proverbs to me. It changed my life. And I don't know that it was just, you know, in one area. Because he told me this morning, my college pastor told me to read the Proverbs every day. 1 to 31, it's chapters. You've heard this scheme before. And on the day that corresponds in the calendar, you read that chapter of Proverbs. I mean, the guy knows the book of Proverbs. Like, they're internalized. And to internalize the book of Proverbs is to be able to assess a situation like the one in verses 1 through 5 and to see that God is calling us to navigate financial responsibility, to avoid entrapments to our own harm, and to handle God's money, because everything you have ultimately belongs to Him, in a way that is careful and disciplined, with gracious generosity, all to the honor of God. How wise is God? How wise is He in giving His people this advice? That's schemes. Number two is sloth, verse 6 through 11. It says, go to the ant, O sluggard. Go to the ant, Like, go look at an ant. Look at its roads. Remember, that's that word direct in in the Proverbs. It's everywhere. Road, path, way, way of life, where it walks. Observe her roads and be wise. Verse 7, which having no leader or officer or ruler or chief, prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. Verse 9, how long will you lie down? Oh, sluggard. It's a great word. You could translate it slacker if you want. When will you arise from your sleep? When will you get up from this gigantic long nap you're in? Verse 10, a little sleep, a little snoozing, a little slumbering, a little folding of the hands and lying Down to rest. And poverty, verse 11, will come in 
like a thug with a gun and rob you and hit you like a hobo with a knife. Again, we're doing ATD translation today. But the NAS, listen to it. Your poverty will come in like a vagabond. What? And your need like an armed man. I feel like poorness is going to get you like a thug with a gun. Like that's it, right? And so what is this saying? Well, I think that there's a progression here, and it's moving from bad situation. You lent some money, and you put yourself on the hook and put your own finances in danger for somebody else without thinking through the implications of it. You could have been generous, but maybe you were unwise to moving towards this description of the sluggard and the comparison of the ant. And I'm not going to go crazy on ant facts today because we have this passage coming in another form later in the book of Proverbs, and that's going to be ant day. We're going to do bugs life. We're going to do ants. I'm going to answer all your questions because your first question is like, wait, doesn't have a chief? What about the queen? Did they not know about the ant's queen? Come up and ask me that afterwards. See how that goes for you. So I'll answer because I know there's some who loves science. The queen, she just stays there doing femorones or whatever. What do you call them? Femor- you know what I'm talking about. She's just putting out some femorones. The ant, you know what I'm talking about. Whatever. Chlorophyll, borophyll. So the ants go out. And you know what's behind the ant? Not a guy with a clipboard going, hey, did you sign in? Hey, whoosh, come on back here. No. The ant just does his thing. And then he comes back. So he doesn't have a supervisor. But what about the queen? Stop asking me about the queen. All right, so that's my answer to that. The important thing is this ant is demonstrating diligence in and out of season, preparing his food in summer, gathering what we'll eat at harvest. There's so many lessons that will come from the ant. The point is, is that he's a hard worker. The warning, just like there's a warning against schemes, in verses 6 through 11, there's a warning against sloth. Here's the sentence. Burn in your mind the destruction that comes from doing nothing. Burn in your mind the destruction that comes from doing nothing. Avoid slacking, sloth, and overindulgence in sleep, and you'll avoid poverty. Value discipline, hard work, and careful planning. Burn in your mind the destruction that comes from doing nothing. Avoid slacking and sloth and overindulging in sleep. Value, uh, value discipline and hard work and careful planning or poverty will club you upside your head. Okay? Everything happening in this section is a warning against being a slacker instead of being a son. He repeats the word, Son, throughout this whole section. But in verse 6, he says, Go to the ant, O sluggard. You don't want your son to be a sloth. You don't want your son to be a slacker. What you want for him is to learn to recognize the connection between his own provision, being his needs being met and taken care of, and taking care of the needs of his family, his home, by 
doing his job diligently. And the greatest enemy of this is number one, wrong thinking. That's why wrong thinking is being corrected with the ant thing. You've got to go to work. You have to be productive. You cannot dodge hard work and labor and striving. There is a connection between anything that you put in your mouth to eat and the work that went behind to procure it. We'll illustrate this lots in the book of Proverbs to come. But right thinking is there is no food apart from labor. That's why the Bible says in text, Second Thessalonians 3.10, 2 Thessalonians 3.10, man don't work, man don't eat. And so if you like tortillas, then you like work. If you like Taco Tuesday, you like work Monday, okay? You cannot have any snacks unless you work. That's how God made the world. And so the person who doesn't work, the second warning is they found, they're found overindulging in something that God made for our good. And that something is siesta, sleep, dormir. So what, what, do I, what do I mean? So if you're thinking about sleep, which is a totally good idea to talk about in this sermon. Are you thinking about sleep? If you're thinking about sleep, you have to think theologically. God doesn't. The Bible says the God of Israel doesn't sleep nor slumber. Neither one. No long night's rest, no naps on the couch. God doesn't do it. Doesn't even blink. Doesn't even rest for a second. Let me me just rest my eyes. God doesn't do it. It's a creaturely thing. And creatures sleep. All kinds of animals bed down for the night. All kinds of animals need to stop and rest. God built it into creation. And for humans, sleep is especially used of God to remind us that we are not God, that we are creatures. And at some point, you're shut down. It's over for you. For me, at the end of the day, I have this amazing spiritual gift to go to sleep. My roommate in college, Jesse Johnson, I saw him this week, he was in town. And Jesse Johnson had this incredible gift. So I can go to sleep at night. He can go to sleep at any moment. And in college, he would choose those moments and would instantly activate sleep. He could sleep right here like this. He could do it. He could sleep on a rock, in a river. He could sleep anywhere. So I, and still to this day, it was sometime this week, we were hanging out and and he was like, oh, we were supposed to go somewhere together in an hour. It was like six o'clock at night. He says, I'm just going to go up to your attic. So my attic above my garage is the scariest place in the world. There's a couch up there. There's a desk for me to study. There's dust. Scary. Jesse says, I'm just going to go up there 
and sleep for like 20 minutes. I didn't tell you that. And I'm like, you still can do that. Like if I go to sleep, it's over for me. You won't see me until tomorrow. So maybe a tiny snooze at my middle age, but anyway. The right relationship to sleep is one that understands that sleep is a reminder that we're not God and it serves to recharge and refresh and to show us that God watches over us and that we've earned the right to sleep. The person who sleeps all day long, who just relaxes and streams movies and never leaves their bed or their room, they are a person of destiny and their destiny is poverty. Their destiny is dependence on others to meet their needs. Their destiny is a cruel master that will make sure that they never make progress in their life. Sleep can be an extraordinary joy like other things that God made, food and sex and sunsets in the world. Everything that God made can be twisted and made into sin. How do you turn a sunset into sin? Well, by just saying, wow, isn't nature cool? Sin. You should worship God when you see that sunset. You should. Nature? What kind of deity is nature? Sex? How do you turn sex into sin? Lots of ways. Anything outside of a covenantal relationship, the stuff we were warned about in chapter 5, monogamous, glorious Christian marriage. Anything outside of that? It's sin. And it takes a gift from God and it twists it and ruins it and shows that he's not being worshipped as he ought. And the same is true with sleep. There's a godly way to sleep and an ungodly way to sleep. How do you think about your sleep theologically? And have you earned it by working during the day? There's room for a night shift if you want. And then you shut down and you go to sleep, proving that you're not God and proving your dependence on Him and recharging like your Tesla for another run. Okay? Number three. Is it 2.50? No, we got two minutes. I can fit it in two minutes. Number three, and this is kind of two sections, verses 12 through 15 and 16 to 19. So I did schemes and I did sloth. Let me do separation, okay? Separation. So this is a little bit trickier, but let's follow it. Verse 12, a worthless person, a dishonorable person, a wicked person, a person who is hateful and harmful is the one who with a twisted mouth Okay, and watch what happens here. It moves across this person's body. Walks with a, a crooked or a false mouth, puckering or squinting or winking their eyes, shuffling and signaling, shuffling the feet, who points with their fingers, crooked acts, verse 14, or perversity in their heart, devises evil continually, cultivating bad schemes, bad plans, provoking argument. That's who spreads strife, end of verse 14. Verse 15, therefore his calamity will come suddenly. Here's the return of calamity, like poverty came in the previous section. In a moment they will break and there will be no healing. Key words, 
dishonorable, crooked, arguments, provoke, strife. It's hard to know what these physical descriptions mean in a cultural way. You give the peace sign to me after Crossroads, you're like, hey, peace out, I'm leaving. I'd be like, peace out. You do that in a different country and they hit you with a stick because it means something different, right? So gestures, physical gestures mean something different in different cultures. We don't know what all this physical stuff means. Except we do know that it's something perverse, worthless, wicked, that ultimately is intended to provoke strife. So picture this. The person is scheming and gossiping and separating and arguing and they're doing this with their hands and this with their eyes because they are up to no good. It's basically a troublemaker. And in this context, a troublemaker is trying to separate people. He's trying to cause harm, cause disunity. So much so that the writer of the Proverbs then makes a theological poem in verse 16, devoted to how dangerous this person is. So worse than losing your family's money on a debt you shouldn't have covered, and worse than sleeping all day long is the danger of being this kind of rabble-rouser, troublemaker, separator of God's people. An argumentative, contentious, and divisive person is worse than all of it. Listen to the poem. There are six things which Yahweh hates, verse 16, and seven that are abominable to him, that outrage God in his spirit. Haughty, prideful, and elevated eyes. A false and lying tongue. Hands that are quick to shed innocent blood and kill. A heart, the the innermost part of a person that schemes and fabricates wicked, evil lies. Quick feet that run to the bad stuff, to what's evil and wrong. A false testifier, a false witness like in court who utter lies against someone who's innocent and one who spreads strife among brothers. The Bible illustrates all these things. The sin of pride causing the fall of the devil. A lying tongue leading to the death of Ananias and Sapphira. The hands that shed the innocent blood of our Lord. The wicked and debauched who go after that which God has said is evil and to be shunned. And those who disunify families and God's people are all on display as the darkest example of what it means to be ungodly. You want to have a stupid life? A stupid life is one that is caught up in schemes that you haven't carefully thought through. And that's nothing. It's just money. You want to have a stupid life? Well, sleep all day. You will be a burden to society, to your parents, an embarrassment to everyone around you. But if you really want to be ungodly, then you're going to be a troublemaker. You're going to ruin 
relationships. Relationships in God's family, relationships in your family, friendships. Here's the sentence. Avoid and guard against those who will disrupt community, especially family, because disunity always dishonors God. Avoid and guard against those who will disrupt community, especially family, because disunity dishonors God, so much so that God says he hates it. Six, no seven is a poetic way of saying there's more than just seven things that God hates. That's why the seven deadly sins are dumb, because all sins are deadly. And there's more than seven. But it's a poetic way of saying, look at all the bad stuff that you can do. And the worst of them is when a a friend would be betrayed by another friend. Or worse would be a friend who's forced to be dependent on other friends because he refuses to work. Or a friend that would put you in a bad situation because of his financial impropriety and his great debts. You see, all of this comes down to friendship and navigating relationships with other people in the world. And adultery, chapter 5, is not the only pitfall that can ruin your life. Your life can hit landmines all over the place. And the remedy to all of it is what the Proverbs has said from the start, which is the fear of the Lord. And the one who embodies perfect wisdom is Jesus Christ. And he laid down his life and accomplished our salvation, maintaining divine integrity by paying our debts with no obligation, no ability for us to ever repay him. And he and his determined and disciplined and hardworking righteous life accomplished what we could never accomplish by the work of our hands because Jesus never failed to do exactly what his father appointed him to do because we don't have a lazy savior. He was selfless for our salvation and he modeled hard work for his disciples with his relentless ministry. And Jesus, ultimately and all unto God, counting nothing precious to him, brought us into God's family at great cost to himself and great pain and suffering and guaranteed a kind of spiritual unity that nothing on heaven or earth or hell could break to separate us from God and from one another. This is how glorious wisdom can be. And this is how dangerous folly is. And so before they come and get me, I'm going to pray. Lord, thank you for this day. Protect us from evil. In Jesus' name, amen.